Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, Sebastian Heine and Elmer Buithaus from game scaling solution company GameEye talk about their entrepreneurship journey. So both Seb and Elmer are longtime entrepreneurs. And in this episode, we chat about their experiences on learning so many things the hard way, building GameEye now together, and what the future could look like for their gaming server startup. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. Hey, game developer. Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players, as GameEye is a platform-independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place, ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out GameEye.com, that's GameYE.com, to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Welcome to the show, Bob Hughes, Sebastian and Elmer. How are you doing? Hi, fine, thank you. So let's kick it off, guys. No small talk. How did you (laughs) get into entrepreneurship in the early days, both of you, and eventually to to found GameEye? So you asked me uh, to go deep into my history here uh, as a a student, maybe even. I am uh, about 40 years old, but a long time ago, I um, played a game called uh, Counter-Strike. It even came out as a beta at that point. And I thought, well, that has some future, this game called Counter-Strike. So I uh, registered some domain names in the Netherlands. And I uh, set up a a forum where you could talk about this new upcoming game uh, called Counter-Strike. I soon found out that there uh, was a community around it and uh, they were forming groups, nowadays called clans or esports mm-hmm. teams, and they wanted to play on their own uh, game servers. So I started renting out actual bare metal game servers. And then I thought, well, this game is at its peak uh, two years later. So I sold that game server company to a local ISP. And then uh, I started listening to my mom. She basically said, there is no future in gaming. Like, go do something with your life, stop playing around with games. So I bought a MacBook, just talked about MacBooks, but I own a MacBook because I know you cannot game on a MacBook. And then I started a, a web company in a small town in the Netherlands called Arnhem. I built a, a backend for e-commerce, totally different. I wanted to bring that more international at some point. Uh, I got some resistance from my, uh, from my co-founders, but as an entrepreneur, you want to move on, go into the world. Bumped into another entrepreneur and we came up with an EdTech solution uh, in London. Uh, and got uh, a full exclusive contract with uh, a company called Clear Channel. Called my mom. Mom, I'm not doing anything with gaming, but I'm going to move to London. When? In two weeks. So set up a company there called Signkick. Eventually exited that, uh, ventured off into fintech. But while doing that, I was like, I'm listening to my mom again. I want to go back into gaming where I, I really started off as a student. 
I've learned so much and um, uh, so much technologies out there. Let's let's see what's happening in gaming. Like, uh, what what are what are people doing on on the front of of of, of infrastructure? And I did a little bit of research. Like, I was like, oh my God, this is a mess. <laughs> what are these guys doing? Uh, so much technology you can use to more advance these skill uh, infrastructure. So I um, I went to Rotterdam. I bumped into Elmer because he was in the same co-working space. And um, I knew in the hallways they were they were talking about that Elmer was giving talks and uh, educating people about scaling and Docker. And I was like, Elmer, I have this idea. What if we would containerize game sessions and find a way to more advancedly scale uh, game binaries? And he's like, this doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I was very I surprised. Think, <laughs> I think from there when you did some research, uh, Elmer. I researched... Uh... Basically, the gaming industry. I wasn't actually really familiar with it, but I figured out that there was a lot of stuff basically missing, especially on the back end. Technology that they use in games is pretty advanced, but for the back end services that they have, is actually not that advanced. Well, it wasn't at that time, I think. So at that time, I was running a software company, and actually, I was questioning if I was even supposed to do that because. In my case, I was making uh, technically difficult software for a company's primary processes and. Most of the time, I was actually keeping my clients happy, like talking to them, explaining to them why this thing needed so much time to be finished. And I love people, but I don't, you know, I'm not good with customers. So I was questioning myself, is this is the thing that I would be doing? I just had an exit from my previous company, which was in facility management. That was something completely different. I was also doing the technical stuff there. And before that, I worked as a freelance developer. And before that, I worked at Commodore uh, from the Commodore 64, which many people hopefully know. I'll be there for that. I was in school. So we're going backwards now. And when I was really young, before I went to school, I had basically three interests. And one of them was computers. The next one was uh, music and girls. I had no clue what to do with girls. So I left that for what it is. <laughs> I did know how to work computers because, you know, my dad had a 286 and I was programming from a very young age. And also for music, I started a drive-in show. So when I was about 11, I paid my friends to carry my disco lights and hang them up at parties and I would be uh, DJing there. DJing was the thing uh, that was what I love to do. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not, uh, I don't have that musical ear. So then when I was 19, I decided to stop doing that and completely focus on computers. And actually, but the entrepreneur thing was already something that uh, later I found out I was doing it all my life, basically. That's how I got into entrepreneurship. Yeah. Drive-in show. Drive-in show. That's how it started. You went off from there and started GameMoy. Can you talk about GameMoy and introduce it a bit? And uh, the rest of the team sort of excited about that opportunity. When I met Seb, the idea was already there, in, but it was in a different form. So we did a couple of pivots, but actually it's still many things that of the ideas that we had in the first place are still valid. What excited me in the first place is the idea that you can um, solve a really big problem that basically any game studio has. And also, it, to me, it was in, in very impressive that, that nobody could solve this in a proper way. And of course, I know they can, but most game studios don't have the attention to build the uh, proper backend. It was actually, in my, in my opinion, it was more like a, an afterthought. And the whole industry seemed to be all right with that. So if there's a game launch and the game is basically unplayable for the first week or two weeks, that's kind of normal. And uh, that is something that I would love to, to change. So, because I think it's not normal that you cannot play a game in the first two weeks. I can understand it. It's but people accept it. And that's actually how, well, I would say bad it is. And that I saw that as a really big opportunity to make it better. And uh, I think if you can solve that problem, then uh, you have a successful company. So that's why I started at least. Yeah. And then that's sort of like idea spread into the company. What kind of like pitch did you actually do for investors when you raised funding? Can you go back in time, Seth, to, to that moment? And what was the pitch like? What are you building? Um, well, it was more the the research we've done. So with research, I don't mean, hey, this technology doesn't exist. We actually visited bigger publishers and studios and asked them what technology they were using. And we found out that most of the time they were using a cloud solution. They were bond to them. They were basically on that tropical island 
with free cocktails and then they ran out of the, the free cocktail money and I had to pay a high fee for being basically integrated into that cloud. And none of them actually liked that. Uh, or they would go for a solution that was, we in the Netherlands would call it how but it's basically sticking some stuff together and then hope for the best. Because that was sort of the, the option they had to go for. And um, there was no actual overall technology that could use everything, like all the cloud or, and all the dedicated server providers and even started adding edge and telco operators so that you were able to deploy as close to your end user, the gamer, as possible. And when we had that sort of picture in place, that's where I uh, started pitching at investors like, hey, we've, we've built this simple technology so far. We've tested this in, in eSports, but we think this is a big, big opportunity in gaming. And we tried to go into gaming very early on, uh, but yeah, the game studio said, we're spending a lot of money on this. Uh, you're just four, or at that point, three, three guys, one lady in, in Rotterdam. Come back when you're a little bit bigger. But that sort of grew, and we showed the picture of the possibilities, what we were doing. We were able to scale already with the version we had at that point, and then show them the bigger picture of what if we would become something that would go against the bigger guys and uh, will be an agnostic deployment solution on a global level, that is, uh, that's something very big. So that's how we basically pitched it in the early days and got them ex- excited. And then, of course, maybe an add-on is like, where is the future of gaming going? Is it still the simple, hey, you, you download a game and then you play that game for a bit and then you buy another one? Or are we moving into a world where this is all going to merge together? Are we going to watch movies together and own items of specific games, or are we meeting each other in a world? And you hear the words as metaverse, persistence. We have a lot of passion, or as you can already hear, Elmer as, as well is quite a, a big geek. Um, we are, are building something, but that's only the beginning, uh, and we want to go on beyond that. Before we go deeper into that area where you guys operate, I wanted to kind of like touch base on with you on the founder aspect and you've both been entrepreneurs and founders several occasions what have you learned from the highs of entrepreneurship and the lows of entrepreneurship yeah well there are far more lows (laughs) (laughs) if you are you should enjoy um, the highs that yeah occasionally (laughs) so sometimes if everything goes well you should Really enjoy that. Yeah, I think that would be my number one tip, at least. Also, I think entrepreneuring, is that a word? Is basically solving problems. And if everything goes well, it's so easy. But that's only for a short period of time. There's always something that goes wrong and you never really know what it is. And then you have to act really quickly, I think. Yeah, so you have to be able to think on your feet. You don't really get any credits. You you, you get some credits, but you don't get the credits. It's not related to, to the amount of work you have to put in. You give so much work and sometimes it goes unnoticed. It's only rarely that, that people give you a compliment, baby. If you need a lot of compliments, not a good thing to do, I think. Yeah, basically, it's it's really a, a lot of hard work and you only see the successes. I think a lot of people already know that, of course. From the outside, it always looks amazing, but in the inside, we work our asses off. And Yeah, enjoy the highs. You sort of, as an entrepreneur, you see the end goal and you're working on that mission for where you would like to be as a company or an entrepreneur. And that basically keeps you going. That gives you the drive. Because most of the times you're in the lows and the highs are nice for uh, for celebrating. And uh, as, as Elmer says, it's good to celebrate, but you need to have this vision in your head. Like this is where we're actually going. And I strongly believe in that. It wakes me up every morning and I keep on going and keep on going. And of course, the whole team uh, keeps on going. It's very important. Yeah, but you have to keep on going because you're also an example for the team, I think. If the founding team breaks down, and it will be you know, from time to time we have better and worse days. But if we really give up or something, then the entire team is going to give up. If we're not going to do it, who's going to do it? You know, we are an example. Our mentality should be rock solid. That gives a little bit of pressure, especially when you're in a low. So I think you should also maybe enjoy the lows a little bit or learn to enjoy them. You know, coping is not enough. You really have to make make something of it. You really have to know that you do these blows for a reason. And the reason you do it is because you have a, a dream, because you have, in the future, you see yourself in a different place, something like that. 
But then again, I also think it, those those things you would apply them. I think you're not gonna make it. You also have to be kind of maybe it's even addictive or something like that. You're just doing it because you are who you are, basically. I cannot really not be an entrepreneur. So uh, it, it's not even really a choice for me. I don't see no other way to live my life. Yeah, I think the the whole lifestyle sort of choice of being entrepreneur is it's really one of those choices that you could basically do something else for a while, but you're always pulled back. And I see that around me with uh, people who try to... It, it always reminds me of Kill Bill. It just Everybody's seen that movie, of course. The lady, Uma Thurman, it's a great movie, by the way. Uma Thurman tries to be a housewife, but in the end, Bill tells her that uh, it's her trying to fit in, but she is a killer. No matter what she does, she will always be a killer. It's the same with entrepreneur, I think. It's the same with anything, actually, I think. But you cannot be somebody else than you are. An entrepreneur is very much something you are, I think. Mm. Not something you do. So thinking about then the team, what has been your approach to building a co-founder team and how has the approach evolved in what you did in previous startups to what you did with the uh, game mine? The obvious is, of course, you cannot do it alone. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I can do a few things very well. And uh, the key is to find someone who you have a good click with as a team member and you strongly believe in that will succeed or extend the capabilities of the team and the capabilities of the of the mission and the idea so i know without elmer i wouldn't be anywhere like technology wise or architecture or culture wise that it's it's very important to find team members who extend or basically create one all together you can win the war because Alone, you're not going to do that. Find someone who's way smarter than you is always a, is a good approach. Yeah, but you say smarter, but I wouldn't be anywhere without you either. That's also why I joined. You know, yeah, I, so, I, it's also the other way around. People yeah, choose you. Yeah, I, I'm not really good at talking to investors and uh, managing relationships and talking to clients and stuff like that. So I need somebody who does that, basically. That is, of mm-hmm. course, where... And we're both really bad at finance, right? I hate money. It gives me a lot of stress and I, I, I just don't want to deal with it. And that's why also we have another founder who's really good at that. In, in, in a way, we all complement each other. That's, that's the key, I think. Do you feel there's any room for like this kind of lone wolf or savant kind of founders in modern tech startups? What are your thoughts about that? Like do it all alone, having having sort of like control on one person. Yeah. Why? Why would you hurt yourself so much? <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, you could. Like, if you strongly believe that you're the best in the world and you don't want anyone to interfere with you, that could be an approach. But I think you'll always be stronger with a team because you just add so much knowledge and so much power to a mission. I would not want to do this alone. Uh, Never, yeah. no. I mean, yeah. neither. But I think it could work, actually. Yeah, like for instance, a team is team is a great thing, but um, you also have to work on your relationship with your founders, for instance. And this takes time, and that's not a, not a problem. But um, you know, you have to invest in your relationship with the founders. You have to keep it good, or else everything falls apart. At the same time, you also need to talk to each other to you know to exchange your ideas. If you don't have all of that and you were on your own, you can be very efficient, I think. I would get very lonely, I think, also. And I don't really know how dealing with stress would be an even bigger challenge, I think. But I think it would be possible. I I can think of some advantages that it has. If I would want to do that, I would have to have people who manage relationships with clients and investors. It would be a little odd, I think. I think it could be done. I'm doing a lot of angel investing and there's a lot of cap tables, which... I bumped into where the one founder has like 90% and then you have two co-founders who have 5%. So that's... Uh, Hardly a co-founder. But it, yeah, it's tricky. tricky. If you have uh, two founders who are in conflict, that's always a risk of so when you have two people because we're still humans. Sure. And that is a risk you don't have with, with one person. And then that one person gets hit by a bus. And then... Yeah, but that's always the thing. But um, 
I'm 41 now, so I haven't been hit by a bus so far. And I don't know any people who have been hit by a bus. I think the chance exactly. is bigger that the company will fail yeah. than that I get hit by a bus. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll write that down. <laughs> it's what everybody says, but there's so many risks on how a company can fail. I think there are more reasons why it can fail than why it can succeed, actually. And uh, no, it's the same thing. If I was hit by a bus right now, I think Game I would have a really big problem. And the same goes for, for Sebastian. And actually, I think everybody in our team at this moment has a key role. So the whole team should not be hit by a bus. At this moment, if, if one of us is hit by a bus, we have a really big problem. Before we go uh, back I think it's, into, also, it's, yeah. it's also a little bit of an entrepreneur, maybe old school way of thinking, like own more. That means that you will be richer or you have more power. But I always take the rule, it's better to own less of something that's worth more than own more of something that's worth like nothing. The more you share, the more you get people involved, the more value you bring to the, the total, the company. So it's always better to own less of something that's worth more. It's the same with... When your valuation goes up and up and up, yes, you will go down in uh, in equity, but the company overall is worth more. So you own less of something that's worth more. And that's yeah. always my philosophy. So yeah, I could go in as like, oh, you guys are going to get 5%. Yeah, like what will be the commitment then from that person that will join the team while well, he has a key role in building this entire mission or this company? It doesn't make any sense. You can also never really stop. I love my job, but is that still the case in 20 years? Or intent. Making yourself obsolete is, I think, my, the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs. Uh, and especially for a founder, I think. If you have such a key role in the company, you can never really stop doing it. And that alone gives a lot of stress. It would be better if you are able to stop doing it and still do it, then you're doing it out of free will, basically. But if you have such a key role, and if you have like 90% that key roles even more, then you have to do it because without you, the whole company does not exist. And that is too much of responsibility for one person, I think. Well, if you like that, then be my guest. But I personally, I, I, I prefer to be completely replaceable, which is... From an investor perspective, that's the, of course for Joachim, that's different. Uh, you would like to see that people are fully committed in the cap table at the beginning. But eventually, uh, you want to make sure that Oh no, but grow and grow. Yeah. But those things go hand in hand. Um, you can be fully committed and still be replaceable. That's the mm -hmm. best place to be in. Because the only reason yeah. why you work there then is because you want to, not because you cannot go away. I love to work for GameI, uh, but at the same time I cannot leave GameI. I would like to keep the first and lose the second. I want to be able to go away and still work there. That is the best place to be in because then um, if you get hit by a bus and we're talking about hitting by buses, but there are far more, more uh, other reasons uh, that you might go away because you can get hit by a bus, but also you can have like a burnout, which is, I think, a uh, bigger danger than, than buses. And the, the the fact alone that you cannot take a sick day, for instance, that it's not that bad at GameI, thank God, but I can imagine that you cannot get sick for a month and that alone uh, brings some stress. Yeah, I think you want to be building a company towards that where the yeah. entrepreneurs aren't people who need to be there all the yes. time. Like there's a, I don't know if you guys know Derek Sivers, who's this entrepreneur. He wrote this book called Anything You Want, where he has 40 lessons for the entrepreneur. And one of them is exactly this, because he managed to actually like leave his company for a year and it like grew during the time it was like... Really? A, I'm going to try that. See yeah, I see... Yeah, the, the company was called CD Baby. It was back in the day when he was basically like artists who weren't like signed to a record label. He was creating them record contracts and selling them online. And he, he managed to do that. I hear what you're saying. That's really an interesting take. As for me, as an entrepreneur, it's the most difficult thing because I really want it to work. I really want to make it happen. But at the same time, you should be making yourself obsolete. And those things are the opposite of each other. I sometimes joke if if there would some if there would someone would come in and be a better CEO than me, I would step down. I always mm -hmm. make that joke. Like if there's someone that comes in better than me, I will immediately step down. Well, first, I want to finish. So far, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Thinking about the the whole approach about going into gaming tech as an entrepreneur, 
you have a business idea for a solution, what are some not so obvious problems that you can bump into when you're building gaming tech? It's a very demanding uh, industry, very unforgiving as well. And this is due to when your game is down, even though it is accepted, like we discussed earlier, there are a lot of people who uh, would really hate you for it when your game goes down. We're not on the front line on that part, but the games that we that we host, they are, of course, relaying that criticism to us if, if it would ever happen. So it's very unforgiving, but then at the same time, it is also a place where you can win with better technology. And that is what I think is interesting about gaming. Technology is really a... It can make you win or lose. Uh, it can make a difference between a good game and a bad game. For instance, if your launch is perfect with no flaws, then uh, you have a running start and everything will happen for you. But if you have a launch and everything is broken, well, good luck making that better. That's a very hard thing to do. So technology can win the, yeah, the battle, basically. Yeah, I can imagine. I've seen a few tech startups that have approached gaming and it's never really like a not the same as you're making a game. Like definitely seeing that uh, area. Then things become more sort of automated and you're basically building updates for the game. But you guys need to sort of like be reinventing a lot of things constantly as the technology evolves. Yeah. How has the need for these multiplayer backends changed in recent years? Especially like why are developers looking for the solutions now versus using existing tech, like building stuff on Azure or AWS? I think it's also a trend a little bit to um, to be more agnostic. And by agnostic, I mean that you're not tied to one, well, at least non-commercial party, or maybe even to one form of technology. But you see it in, in every uh, technology-related industry, at least in every IT-related industry. People are looking now for a solution where they can pick what they need instead of being tied to their the choice they once made. Yeah, that is something that that is changing a little bit, but not only in gaming, I think. Also, I think um, one thing, that, but that is more for the future. It's not really taking off now. That is, if you want to build something like a metaverse, so a world that has its own economy, that has that is persistent, that has basically its second life done right. And that is something you see more and more. And then you can also have like games in games. If you want to build that to, to a scale that is well, the size of the matrix, basically, then you need a whole a different uh, hosting solution. You would need something that scales infinitely and also cross regions and also something that could be hypothetically expandable to Mars. That is something we are looking into, but more as an experiment. But that is something that will definitely be needed in the future. Some companies are already uh, building something like that. But I have the feeling that nobody really got it yet. Nobody has the answer to the problem yet. So that is something that's going to be very interesting in the future. And mostly it's, I think, the, the ease of use. Because if you're building a game, yeah. you're building a game. You're in 3D engines, you're working with sound, animations. You're not building a backend. You're not going to set up an infrastructure because of your game. So it's the, the way of integrating that technology in your current workflow and your current tools or the tools you've chosen. Um, and that's a tricky one, having it as user-friendly as possible for the people who are building yeah. the game. You, you don't want to build an extra team that is going to basically build a game as a solution. Like have an agnostic infrastructure on top of all yeah, that's that's quite a big mission. Then if you're building a game, you're not doing that. And you're not going to build the whole yeah. persistent part. You're not going to build the infrastructure. So I think that's... Um, yeah. I mean, that is something that is missing now, I think, from what we have now, is that it's all very based to a uh, technology. And you cannot mix and match technologies you want. You have to, If you choose one framework, uh, you have to commit everything to it. And that's fine, but it won't scale to the size I think is needed for things that are as big as the matrix. So millions like maybe 10 20 like why not a billion people and i wanted to ask about this going back into the moment where you were fundraising i sort of like from my own experience have seen that tech startups that focus on gaming might not be the most attractive for investors who know gaming there's a lot of challenge to gaming which is like developers want to build their own tools things like that but i feel like when the right company comes along, the investors will jump at it for the opportunity to invest. But what do you think about like fundraising for a tech startup in gaming? What is hard? Why can it be hard? 
for investors? And why wasn't it hard for you guys? So you mean investing in the tech parts or the developer tools in the gaming space rather than in game studios? Yes. And yeah. like for, let's say, giving advice for somebody who's thinking about building a gaming tech startup, like how should they approach fundraising? Well, of course, the industry is growing, growing fast. And game studios, they have ideas and that needs to translate into an actual game. And to come to that end point, you need developer tools. You need the tools to do so. And currently, a lot of the tools are still limiting. And as Elmer says, you have to join an island. Uh, you're basically bound to what they have decided in their tool suite you can build on. So, yeah, developer tools are there, there's still a lot of things needed in the industry to move on as in total. Yes. So, technology is one of the biggest plays, in my opinion, in the game industry. If we want to go to a world where we are a metaverse, you cannot do that anymore with the current technology. Just a simple game server binary, hosting it somewhere on a server, that is definitely not persistent. And then trying to hack those binaries together to make it sound like persistence, like other startups are doing, that is not building technologies, that's hacking stuff together. So there is still a huge, huge, huge play in technology. That's where, where Gamer is trying to, to make a big move in distributing compute power in a way that we are building a global persistent solution and making the game industry ready for the next generation of, of games uh, and gamers. There's still a lot of stuff coming uh, in the future, like infrastructures will change. People are talking about the edge. Like, Why do I need to blow, deploy a game server in Azure or in AWS or Google when I'm playing on a mobile phone? while I'm connected to my telco operator who has data centers. All that sort of stuff is still something we're trying to solve. But then on the other side, you have animations, Unreal's making big moves now, but there's still so much stuff that needs to happen in the industry for investors. It's a great opportunity to look at developer tools. Just have a look at where is the game industry going? What are... Yes, game studios are using this now, but potentially where are they moving towards and what would like what are they go they're going to use in the tools uh, and where is the where's the big gap? We're trying to fill in one of those gaps. In my opinion, there are still a lot of gaps. So in a sense, like a founder in tech startups could think about where is the industry going in five years and is my solution and the approach the one that is taking something that will meet like the need of the industry in five years. Yeah, or look at other industries, look where they are, and uh, versus gaming, whether uh, payment solutions or game items is still, yes, we're, we're talking about blockchain and stuff, but uh, I still see huge opportunities in NFTs, uh, owning parts of the game. Someone who wins the first end boss in the game will own the end boss collectible or collector's edition. I own the entire World of Warcraft sealed in boxes. But that doesn't exist anymore. If you buy a game, who's going to tell me that I own number one of that game? That's a collectible. And there's so yeah. many things that like, I would love to jump in as an entrepreneur. I need to focus, of course, but there are a lot of great opportunities out there. I think it's basically every aspect of life. And there are so many aspects of life. And one of the things you say is basically uh, like a trophy that you have. In this case, it's it, it, like if you win a race, you get a medal for it. You want to show that to your parents and everybody. But if you win again, you get nothing. So if you have like a virtual medal for that, that is real. So it is authentic. That's, of course, very important. But you can do it at your blockchain nowadays. Um, yeah, there is there is a need for that, I think. Because why would you give a medal to a person? As somebody a very long time ago figured that was a good idea because people wanted that. Oh, people still want that when there's no medal anymore. Now we're talking about medals and, and, and things you can own. But I think it's far more things. I think also that it's, you know, at some point, it's not really a game anymore. It's life. I think it's really interesting what's happening with Fortnite, the, the Patreon mode. There you have a film festival and stuff like that. You have uh, artists that, that have a performance there. And people go there with their skins and, um, I don't know, do their Fortnite dance on whatever artist is playing there. It's a new way of interacting socially with each other, I think. And, and gaming is only where it started. I don't know where it will end. But I think if my children are bigger, a big part of their life is spent online. And it's going to be something like Discord maybe, but probably also a game where they show off their new skins and maybe not even shoot each other. <laughs>
So it's not a game anymore then. It's more like a a real thing. Those two worlds will also merge. You can already see that happening a little bit. I remember a not so nice article that I heard it on the radio. I think it was a there was a guy who had some sword in the game and um it was stolen for him or something. And um then the guy who stole it got murdered by the kid. So it's not a good thing, but um it is an example on how those uh, virtual items and virtual worlds merge into a real life and become real. Actually, they've mm. always been real, only they have been bits and bytes, which to me is as real as molecules. Now people are really feeling that feeling of realness is going to happen, I think. Yeah, makes sense. But going back into kind of like company building topics here, I wanted to ask about culture. So can you tell me like what has been the approach for building best possible culture and how do you navigate this new reality of the remote work becoming sort of like the norm the not virtual uh, way of doing it was actually a bit weird for us because we were always wanting to be remote we figured there's no reason to go to an office to do something you can do at home okay except for social things because we're all humans and we need to socialize so it makes more sense if you have a social interaction to do that in real life but if you're developing something you have exactly the same hardware at home or maybe even better even if you're developing you don't need you have to communicate so you can just have your assignment and do it so in that sense traveling to an office makes no sense also hiring somebody that is in your neighborhood is also kind of a weird thing because if the best person for the job is on the other side of the world why not hire him so we always wanted to have a remote company and when uh, covid hit that was actually very easy for us because a few people who, who had to get used to the idea when covid hit they just um, immediately so now we're a remote company and basically our office is discord that is one of the things we did we have to be visible if you're working and all you are is a a, a piece of text in, in slack or something like that then you're it, it's very easy to get disconnected you don't really have a, a sense of togetherness and now on discord if you want to talk to somebody you go to a channel that he's in um, and when you do that you immediately see his face it happens also very often that we're working and we just have a channel open and we don't say anything and then we have to sound off and you can you know, it's not even that we're looking at each other all the time, but you get a sense of togetherness. And that is something that is implicit when you're in the same office. As long as you're in the same office, you are a group. You cannot really deny that, that you are at that moment a group. And if you keep on doing that for a couple of weeks or a month, then you, you get closer to each other. And that all, all goes pretty much automatic. And that is something with remote Nothing is automatic. Like, for instance, if, if somebody has a birthday, it's very possible that you don't even know that when you're remote. In office, it's almost impossible to not know it. Like, for us, if, if I talk to with my colleagues about a book that I read and I want to give it to him, I bring it the next day and I give it to him. It's remote. It's not possible. And then we're only talking about these practical things. But that I think the most important thing is like the nonverbal communication which can only partly be solved by webcam. But if you are talking on a webcam, you would see in the background, you might see, well, in, in my background, I have a box. So you probably be thinking, oh, uh, what's that box doing there? Oh, that thought alone says so much about my personality. So I'm a person that doesn't clean up his room, maybe, you know? You 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 kind of uh, relate that to a whole set of traits that I may or may not have. Yeah, whether that's good or bad, that's another thing. But that's how you form an image of a person, like a social image. So all of that you don't have. So what we did is uh, we accepted that. We made uh, a lot of things explicit. So one of the things that we have is a parcel service. So if I want to give something to my colleague, I can order a guy who comes and pick up whatever I want to give. And um, the guy or girl delivers it to uh, to one of my colleagues. And that is one of the things that we do but we also realize that we cannot replace it what we can do is we can reap the benefits of working remote and that i think is the only way to do it successfully you should not try to mimic the real world because nothing mimics the real world like the real world the real world is is unique but the remote world is also unique there are a couple of advantages there and we should embrace them like we have uh, uh, diff more different cultures than a, a, a local company simply because we have people all over the world. So we create a place where, where there's a lot of respect uh, also for cultures and also for, for everybody's opinion because people from different cultures have different opinions. And if you foster openness and stuff like that, then you're basically embracing your remote culture. 
Uh, we do a lot more. So one of the things we also do is we are, we are very direct to each other. We want to have everybody to be open. So if there's a problem, you should say it. And we talk about it and then we make it better. There's no taboos in GameMind. No matter what the problem is, that is something that is also, you know, you need to explicitly take care of those things because if somebody comes in with a frown in an office, it's very easy to, to ask, oh, what's up, man? But it's much harder to see those things if you're in a remote company. And that's also why we hired a person to do those things. We find a really uh, enthusiastic and good a woman who is uh, helping us out with uh, basically being the glue between the people in the company. And that that really helped. Before she was here, it was much, much easier to um, to be invisible. And now uh, she helps out with social events that we do. We don't do a... Uh, but we do social events about every week. And it's not a uh, pub quiz every week, but sometimes it's a pub quiz. So it's also a vari- variety of things. We do a lot more things, but... Uh, that's it's a big change since he, uh, he joined. Really enjoying it. Yeah. yeah. You, you have to make a real effort. You have to be very committed to, to building that remote culture. In a normal company, culture automatically exists. Whether you Maybe you don't like it, maybe you like it, but you have a group, remote culture. If you don't pay any attention to it, the whole thing falls apart. And it's like a full-time job. Hey, before we go to the final questions, I wanted to ask yeah. one question from uh, Seb about your board meetings. I, I know your investors quite well. They're really good. Good at what they do, adding value. But how do you approach getting the most out of board meetings? I think the added value investors is often not in the board meetings. It's more asking them direct help beside the board meetings. As you can hear, Elm and I are very close. We're also the board. So if if there are early days there was something, we just go into a call and we call it the board meeting and we immediately address the the, the issue and start solving the problem uh, as fast as we can. The board meetings nowadays, of course, is a little bit bigger. You have more people involved, a lot of knowledgeable investors. And so nowadays... I feel more like, hey, we spend a lot of time in getting everything together for the board meeting, having the best overview of where the company is now in in metrics. And then you join the board meeting and then the investors will be like, yeah, but normally you would have these and these numbers and you would go this and this direction. Ah, okay. And then you go back and you go back into the board meeting better again. So it's been a big change from going from a startup towards a professional board meeting. And the, the weird thing is there's nowhere you could sort of figure out, okay, this is how the board meeting should be with investors. And because you came from a different type of doing the board meetings, a more direct way and solving problems immediately, and then more going on to an overview of where the company is now, where uh, we expect the company to be in a more number and KPI way. So we do our best to go into those board meetings as best as possible. And we know that every time we go into out of a board meeting with the investors, we come out as smarter and, and more mature as a company. So that's how investors really help us. They keep you sharp, educate you on what a professional company should do. But besides the board meetings, uh, investors have been um, uh, always been, yeah, it sounds weird, but it's the same as founding members. You find each other. If they don't bring added value to the company, then I often see that that. Uh, startups, they go after investors. And then uh, I hear what investors they're, they're going for. It's like, I don't think that's a great fit for you guys because they yeah. will not bring you as a company forward. Back to your question, how do we go into board meetings? Basically, everything as an entrepreneur, you go in as best as you can and um, come out smarter on the other side. Good tips. Then the final questions. What are your favorite books and why? I think it's something very nice to add to uh, our culture uh, story Elma, Elma gave. Somehow, my team exactly knows, and uh, this person has also uh, uh, been with us for, for quite a while, exactly knows which book was my favorite book. Even though we have a remote uh, culture, he knows he knew this uh, this stuff, and we had a Secret Santa event. And suddenly I uh, I got a book, as Elmer said, you can send stuff to each other. I got a book arrived at my place and I unpacked it. It's like, hey, that's my favorite book. How the freak does anyone know this? Like, wow, that's nice. And it got even better. Like it was a sticker on it and says, a signature. What do you mean signature? So I opened the book 
And my favorite book is a book from, I forgot, um, 19, I think the story is from 1965 or something like that. And this book was written in 1967. And I had a signature in there from the, the actual writer. So my team, Jürgen is his name, for As a Secret Santa, uh, gave me my favorite book with a signature in it. So there's really a nice mix of how culture in our team is, has evolved into actually sending each other that is very close to uh, that person. My favorite book is because it's a, it's a book that actually happened. Uh, it's called uh, Who Needs a Road? It's the last journey around uh, the world when there were no wars. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of learnings in there as um, how the globe would eventually become as it is now with pandemics and wars and culture clashes. And it's uh, written from a perspective of uh, of two writers from New York who just went onto a journey, no idea what they were doing, got a car, a jeep, and drove around the world with a camper. Um, I could recommend that book. Um, it has this, yes, there is an entrepreneurial flavor in there, but you have to read it to understand it. Yeah, I have. Uh, it's called uh, "How to Avoid IT Disasters" by Lance Goodrich. The title is uh, also a little bit, uh, kind of makes you wonder what the book is about, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this this guy is, um, you might call him controversial. One, one of the, how I know uh, this guy, and, and uh, actually later I found out he actually wrote a book, but he put a post uh, on the internet and uh, saying that databases are a design flaw, which is also a very catchy title. He also explained, he got a lot of shit from that. A lot of people are like, oh, you can't say that. And because databases are the, are the backbone of, of, of everything or something like that. He explains really well that uh, database, how databases evolved and that they were a solution for a problem that no longer exists. And I just love that. That guy is just uh, challenging the norm. And uh, mm. that is something I, I, I love to see. Nice. And also, he explains that why... A lot of IT projects go horribly wrong in a way that people get hurt because of a failing IT project. To me, that is really a disaster. And he explains how those things happen and how they might be avoided. Yeah, interesting book. The world should read it. Nice. That's really good. Do you guys have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? Yep. I have many stories, actually. No, there's one story that that was that was very maybe that's that's why I started all of this. One of my driving factors is when I was very younger, my dad had a job, and he actually he was getting too old, and he got fired. Well, he got some money with him, so it was like he got a good deal out of it. But I figured then uh, he was working there for a couple of I don't know, twenty years, maybe thirty years at the same company, and I was pretty young back then, and. Uh, you know, he was all right because he, he got a lot of money from it. All right. So there was no real problem. But I figured it's horrible to not being able to uh, to decide what happens to you. Um, he did nothing wrong. It was not his fault. He did not have any influence on it. I, I thought about that a lot. And uh, I decided that uh, I want to do it different. So I want to have control of everything. In my life, I also believe that everything that happens to me is my own fault. So I am the fault of my success and failure, basically. It's all me. Even though sometimes it seems that uh, I don't have any control over it. If I don't have any control over it, I should have had control over it. Get it? So in that sense, that's my way of being free, actually. So that comes from a very long time. I think it was like 10 years old or something. I think that is actually the starting point of being an entrepreneur. Do you want to share yours? Such a difficult one to answer. So I, I have no idea what kind of. I have so many stories in my entrepreneurial journey. I basically never had a job in my life. So there are so many things that happened and how I do my work nowadays. You know what the thing is that when you're an entrepreneur, when you go into these calls, and I also did some uh, some guest lectures at universities about entrepreneurship. And when someone asks you, you have to really think back and you start thinking, okay. What actually happened in the past? Like, as an entrepreneur, you most of the time you just move forward. You're basically educating yourself on what problem am I solving now? What do I have to do for tomorrow? What's happening next week? That's then the answer. Like you spend one percent of your yeah. time on looking back on how you got to where you are now, and ninety nine percent you're you're busy with the next thing about your today, about your tomorrow, about the future, and you keep on going. You keep on going. So, yeah, how did that shape me? I think. That's still going. You're very busy about 
what's what's happening in the future and and the now rather than how did I get here and that's always um very enjoyable uh, especially when I did the lectures in universities in London like hi jeez I did a lot yeah that's a lot of knowledge in this head which you basically somehow not use because you're busy with the next thing and teaching yourself or learning how how to to get to the next level so last question for you guys how can people get in contact with you if they want to ah. ask about KMI <laughs> or, gonna, or anything gonna, if it's about entrepreneurship so i have a i have a rule i sort of live by with the people you work with and uh, the people around you which have helped you get to the next level is is your network and i always say that's the number one asset in life so if you are an entrepreneur and you want to get in contact with me I would recommend do it via my network. Ask someone else to introduce me because that will yeah. help you. If you want to talk to an investor, don't go direct. Ask someone else to introduce you. Uh, so if it's about, but if you simply want to get in contact with me, you can always email me or get on Twitter or whatever platform I'm at uh, and get in contact with. Of course, for business opportunities or a business development or partnership around GameI, it's Sebastian at GameI.com. Always open. Yeah. They're usually on Discord. Discord. It also depends on what you want to talk about. If you're a recruiter, then don't bother. <laughs> um, please, please don't, because they call me all day. But and and, and for that, I I like to help people. If you're young and you want to do uh, something that you think I can help you with, let me know, and we'll see what I can do. I want to give back to the uh, to the world. There are people. Some people in the past helped me, and I believe in paying it forward. I'm here to make the world better, I hope. And I, I can do that hopefully by helping other people out. So if you need help with anything and if you're young, yeah, maybe we can maybe I can help you. So if you want to reach out for that, I'm open. We can have a call and just find me on uh, LinkedIn or Discord. And uh, if I don't respond, it's probably because I don't really read a lot of messages. But if I can help you, I'll respond. Yeah. And also oh, if you're a good you. developer, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So guys, this was so much fun. Hopefully, right. get to see each other physically at some point soon. I'm looking forward to take uh, a while. some offline events <laughs> yeah, again. Take a while. Yeah, I would love to. I, I would love to sit in a plane. Yeah, and uh, step yeah. out of it also. Yeah, it's so nice <laughs> having all these rewards and Sky Team rewards, and now you have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There goes your air miles. Yeah, yep. <laughs> oh no. All right. Take care, guys. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening to us. And we have a weekly newsletter going out every Friday where I write the stuff that I'm curious about with startups and gaming. Uh, so check that out at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. And I will see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.